Hello and welcome to the only podcast that's all about Fort Meade, our community, and life in the military. I'm your host, Joe Nieves. And I'm your co-host, Sherry Kuiper, and you're listening to Fort Meade Declassified. As of April 7th, Fort Meade is at Health Protection Condition Charlie. There have been a lot of changes with HP Con Charlie, and here are a few more that we want you to be aware of. Privileges have been extended for the use of our commissary, exchange, and post-hotel lodging. Our garrison commander, Colonel Eric Sprague, issued the order to allow access to day-to-day living items for personnel needed for our critical missions here on Fort Meade and whose normal travel and shopping options may have been impacted by state, local, and military rules. To find out more about these new privilege extensions, please visit the COVID-19 page on the Fort Meade website. There are also new procedures at the Visitor Control Center on Reese Road. You will no longer be able to go inside the Visitor Control Center. However, you will just go to the inspection station and get approved to come on post from there. You can call the VCC at 301-677-1064 if you have any questions. The only gates that are currently open on post right now are MAPES 32 and Reese Road. Let me repeat that. The only gates that are currently open right now in Fort Meade are MAPES 32 and Reese Road. Rockenbach has been closed down and Llewellyn has also closed down. For more information on the COVID-19 situation here at Fort Meade, just head over to our website, home.army.mil forward slash Meade and click on the COVID-19 banner at the top of the page. There you'll get more information on those extended privileges and you will see the most up-to-date information on our impacted services here on the fort. So here's the thing. This episode was originally supposed to air in March for Women's History Month, but COVID-19 came along and got us a little bit off schedule. The original episode was supposed to include an interview followed by a women's leadership panel. What we've decided to do in order to bring you more information about COVID-19 is split up that Uh, episode. So today you will hear the interview portion and on the 21st of April, you'll get to hear the women's leadership panel. We hope you enjoy it. Joe, I'm very excited today for our guest here. We have with us Vice Admiral Nancy Norton. She is the director of the Defense Information Systems Agency, which we often call DISA. And she also wears another hat, or perhaps a cover, I should say, as the commander of the Joint Force Headquarters Department of Defense Information Network. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm going to take a breath after that. That's a lot to say. It is. (laughs) Uh, Vice Admiral Norton, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Sherry. I really appreciate having uh, the opportunity to talk to you and Joe and be part of this podcast. I want to start out by talking a little bit about these two major agencies that you are in charge of. And it's also by no default that it's also Women's History Month, and we have you here today as a woman at the helm of these two agencies. So could you talk to us a little bit about what exactly DISA is and what what they do? Well, first of all, DISA is a combat support agency. It is the premier IT combat support agency, information technology uh, combat support agency for the Department of Defense. So what that means is that we are in support of uh, combat operation enabling capabilities for our combatant commands around the globe, for all of the, the DOD components in the agencies, 
and uh, we have a global presence. We have uh, almost 16,000 people of about 8,000 military and civilian, and then about the same number of contractors that work for us around the globe, providing capability for telecommunications, computing, uh, cybersecurity, uh, everything that you can imagine that is required to command and control our forces to move data, to protect data around the globe. And I just want to put in perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, so you are providing that support for little old Sherry at the Garrison mm-hmm. Public Affairs yep. Office all the way up to the President of the United States that's, and everybody in between and around. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The The White House, the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense, the President, uh, each of our combatant commands, commanders around the globe, and the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are out in the field on, or on the seas every day uh, conducting operations and, and exercises and being ready to respond to our nation's conflicts. Uh, that's an incredible footprint. It I is. Mean, it's, it's everyone. And I think it's something that we take for granted. I mean, mm-hmm. I literally have two phones sitting here with me, cell phones. I can connect and communicate at a whim. And I know in the office when the internet goes out, it's, it's oh, the worst thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. But when you think about that on this larger scale of our combatant commands, of our people out carrying out these missions, it's a lot more important than me just not being able to get on Facebook for the day. And I think that that's an incredible uh, mission that you have over there, you and your team. Yes, it definitely is. You know, you think about, uh, for example, um, what AT&T does or Verizon does or, you know, any of those uh, telecommunications providers. That's essentially what we're doing for the Department of Defense, that backbone, and uh, in making sure that everything is secure and and available for all of those, um, those uh, uh, agencies and commands. Let's talk a little bit now about, for the Joint Forces excuse me, the Joint Force Headquarters Department of Defense Information Network. For that, you serve as the commander. Right. So how does that fit into the whole mission, and how is it different from what you're doing at DISA? So being dual-hatted, first of all, I report to two different bosses. Uh, in the DISA role, I report to the, the DOD's chief information officer in the Pentagon, Mr. Dana D.C., in my Joint Force Headquarters Doden hat, I report to General Nakasone as the U.S. Cybercom commander. And uh, and so he's right here on Fort Meade. My boss is local for that hat. And so in that hat, he's responsible for, uh, for all things cyber, the cyber domain. And under him, the Joint Force Headquarters Doden is responsible for the secure, operate, and defend missions of the cyber domain on the DOD's networks. And so that means not outside of DOD's networks uh, and not any offensive cyber, but but securing, operating, and defending. So much of what DISA does for the Department in Enterprise Services uh, is is actually in support of Joint Force Headquarters Doden. It's an interesting relationship being dual-hatted as both. But is as the commander of Joint Force Headquarters Doden, I'm also coordinating, synchronizing, and providing command and control for all of the DOD components that operate some portion of what we call the Doden, the DOD's information networks. So that includes the uh, the uh, Fleet Cybercom that's right here on Fort Meade, the Marfor Cybercom that's right here on Fort Meade, Air Force Cyber Command, um, and uh, Army Cyber Command, and all of the other components that that operate some piece of that. 
and synchronizing all of those efforts for operating and and uh, properly securing our cyberspace domain is a really complex um, uh, operation. We have 45 DOD components, and so we have meetings and tell all 45 of those components what they need to, to be doing on the Doden and what their priority missions are on any given day. I'm just, I'm, I'm a little at loss for words because... Again, just my limited experience, and to know that you're taking the technology and taking cyber to a whole new level mm -hmm. for our men and women around the world, it's just an incredible thing. And also to now knowing a little bit more about what you're doing in that big, great big building off of Cooper Ave over there, too, uh, is so impressive and such an, an important and integral piece of the cyber mission here, which is what Fort Meade is now known for. We've yeah. been known for many things in our 100-year history, uh, but moving forward, it's definitely cyber. Mm -hmm. And the missions that are happening here at Fort Meade that you're supporting, and I think it's one thing for people listening to understand that here at Fort Meade, the cyber mission's happening now. The the cyber war is happening here. People are sitting in buildings all over this installation doing their mission. They're not deploying from Fort Meade. They're deploying to Fort yeah. Meade, and they're doing their work from Fort Meade, and that is just an incredible, incredible mission, especially the way our world is moving these days. Yeah, and and it's it's become so complex that we have to have that we had to create the cyber command. You know, at some point the DoD saw it as as a you know as a smart move, obviously, and uh, it's and it's and they chose Fort Meade, which is great because I don't know. It's we do just, the coolest things here. Yeah, at we Fort do Meade. we do really cool things here. Um, so uh, I, I have I have a, a question for you, ma'am. Where are you from originally? I, I grew up in small town rural Oregon. Okay, and so I I, I, I want to know because you have attained this amazing level in the military. Did you ever think coming from small town Oregon you'd ever be where you are now? Absolutely not. I had no. Well, first of all, none of this existed. Yeah. You know, what we're talking about today, this, this role, uh, DISA wasn't even, uh, didn't even exist when I was a small girl. Uh, DCA did, the, the pre precursor, which was Defense Communications Agency, and then it evolved into a much larger, more complex um, computing and cybersecurity than just telecommunications. But um, when I was a young girl, uh, I, you know, I didn't envision that at all. I, uh, I, I didn't even travel much when I was a young girl. I uh, always wanted, though, to travel, to see the world, and to do something bigger than what I had experienced or what I had seen uh, myself. I wanted to serve in some some capacity and knew that, that that was important to me. Yeah, and the U.S. Navy afforded you the opportunity to travel and see the world. That's right. So yeah. when I joined the Navy, the ad campaign was Join the Navy, See the World. And uh, when I joined the Navy and went to officer candidate school was the first time that I'd flown in a commercial airplane. Wow. And now I've traveled to about 68 countries. Wow. That is incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. Although I want to know if in the campaign when it said, join the Navy, see the world. Ah, that's how a did they spell see? <laughs> because I, I need to go back and talk to those communications yeah. folks if they did not spell it 
S-E-A. They need to bring that back around. These are the things that I think about while I'm doing an in- interview with the yeah. Vice Admiral yeah. here. <laughs> but that I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you went from the small town organ yeah. to the Navy and how this interested you. Because one of the things I find interesting living so close to Annapolis and knowing a cabillion academy grads, including my own husband, is you didn't go that route. So one, it is very possible to reach amazing leadership goals and not go through those types of service academies. So you joined the Navy. Did you know that you wanted to go the communications route or were you just kind of along for the ride and and this is where you ended up? Well, first of all, it was not a direct path by any means. Uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a doctor and, and wanted to go to medical school. And when I was, I, I grew up in a blue collar family. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young. So my mother was, was raising us and was, you know, had to be the primary caregiver and, uh, and really couldn't afford college. And so in high school, I started looking at uh, considering going to, into the service for scholarship for college. Uh, but then I got a, a full-ride um, academic scholarship and went to college, was a pre-med major. But my grades weren't good enough in college to get scholarships for medical school. And so I started looking at the military again for a military medical scholarship uh, program and uh, wound up talking to the Navy, and uh, and they convinced me to join and then apply for the program after I had joined the Navy. So I joined the Navy. I went to officer candidate school. I was assigned to Hawaii to the largest telecommunications uh, station in the world and started working there and had planned to apply for the program that first year. Decided I loved what I was doing and uh, I was going to wait another year and I waited another year and then I got another assignment and I loved what I was doing and uh, finally decided I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I want to keep doing this. I love being in the Navy. I love telecommunications. Uh, This is giving me the opportunity to serve uh, my country and fellow man. And the leadership opportunities that I I got as a very junior officer were really important to me and just wonderful to be able to, to have that kind of relationship with the people who worked for me. So I kept doing it. And 33 years later, I'm still here. Yeah. I'd say that's a good choice. Yeah. You made a good choice, yeah. ma'am. I, I think that's the beauty of the military that a lot of people don't get to see unless they serve is that um, you can go into it not knowing what you want to do. I, I mean, in your case, you did. You you knew where you wanted to go. But then you might find yourself at a completely different place loving exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that's, that's really nice to hear happen, you know, because... When I came into the military, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, I found communications, but like, you know, the the hardware side of things. And I loved it. And I never thought I would. Um, And then years later, I became a broadcaster and had no idea I would love doing what I was doing. So I, I love that about the military. I love that you can try something new and they'll support you. And next thing you know... You could be an admiral in, in the Navy. That, that's amazing, you know? That is amazing. It was very different for me. Yeah. When I was 12 years old, I wanted to work for ESPN and be a broadcaster. And while I never worked for ESPN, I pretty much stayed the same yeah. kind of careerish path. But I do admire my friends in the military who all have said, oh, I went in for this and came out with this. Yeah. And it's yeah. always been such an amazing experience. And I wish that that existed for 
the civilian life as well. Yeah. You know, I wish kids had more opportunities, you know, to go to college and just experience a bunch of different things and not feel like they had to fit into cer- a certain mold yeah. uh, right away. But for those who are interested in cyber, this whole region, ma'am, is is full of people who are very talented, uh, very smart, and very into the cyber realm. For our youth out there, especially young girls, how important is getting involved with STEM at an early age for the cyber community? Well, a STEM background is important for everybody. For boys, for girls, it doesn't matter because you have to have some foundation to be able to build from, regardless of what you end up doing. And and so I, I, I definitely would uh, encourage everybody to not close off the opportunities to learn at a young age uh, some of those basic foundations. That doesn't mean everybody's going to go into a career in STEM, uh, but, but everybody needs that foundation in a, in a very advanced society. You know, we use technology every day, and, and that means a lot of people have to be able to build that technology, um, sell that technology, use that technology, protect that technology in ways that they may not have thought about. And, and so if you're uh, giving yourself the opportunity to learn um, from a young age, then it will expose you to lots of different opportunities when, when you get into high school and college. So, ma'am, real fast, what would you tell kids who have an interest in, in getting into the cyber world? Well, one of the most important things that they need to be thinking about and their parents need to be thinking about is if you want a career in cyber, in the government, in the military, you're probably going to need a security clearance. Even in industry, you're probably going to need a security clearance, which means don't do any stupid things that are going to keep you from being <laughs> eligible when you become an adult. Yeah. That makes sense. What are, what are some of those stupid things? I mean, just to give an idea of how serious we're talking here. Yeah. Uh, because, unfortunately, kids will be kids. So what, what are you looking at when you're looking at those security clearances to see what may or may not be? I'm assuming any kind of criminal record is a huge red flag. Are there other things that that you're looking for when you're looking at those clearances? So a uh, criminal record obviously is is important uh, to not have one, clean record. Uh, drug use is really important. Uh, ha- being uh, somebody that is honest and trustworthy, mm-hmm. so when people start interviewing you of what, what kind of background do you have and are you trustworthy, can you, mm-hmm. can you keep the nation's secrets, can you protect the nation and national security, uh, then you have to be able to, to say yes. You also have to think about what foreign travel you do and, and how that might expose you to uh, higher risk. That's it for part one of our women's leadership episode of Fort Meade Declassified with Vice Admiral Nancy Norton. Be sure to listen to part two, our women's leadership panel, available April 21st. Follow us on social media, and don't forget to download the Fort George G. Meade app from your favorite app store. Also visit our website, home.army.mil forward slash Meade, for up-to-date information on COVID-19. 